If you have a Bible, find 1 Samuel chapter 31, our Old Testament reading for this morning. The last chapter of 1 Samuel, the end of our series going through this book. 1 Samuel chapter 31. Notice the very first verse. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. So the chapter begins with a bang. There's a chaotic scramble of troops, and we're in the midst of a battle. The Israelites are fleeing and falling, and the dead are piling up quickly. That's verse 1. Verse 2, the camera lens focuses in on the king of Israel and his three warrior sons. They're the only ones left. The Philistine army has them surrounded and they take out the sons. Verse 3, the camera zooms in even tighter. Only King Saul and his armor bearer have survived. He's wounded by an arrow. It's ironic. Because this king is from the tribe of Benjamin. And the tribe of Benjamin is renowned for their use of bows and slings. So he's brought down by his own tribe's specialty weapon. It's as if some invisible ironic hand has directed an arrow to a specified target. Verse 4. Saul is wounded. He's surrounded. He's desperate. He's helpless. He can see the Philistines moving in for the kill. And he's overwhelmed with fear. One of the ancient Hebrew manuscripts literally says, he writhed greatly in fear. Another one says, he quaked with fear. So he commands his armor bearer to kill him so that the Philistines don't capture him alive and torture him. But this is a tragedy. And like Macbeth in the final scenes of Shakespeare's play, Saul barked out orders, but no one listened. He refused to listen to the word of Yahweh, and in the end, everyone refuses to listen to him. So completely alone, completely isolated, he takes out his sword, points the tip of it at his abdomen, and falls to the ground impaling himself. His armor bearer, seeing that King Saul is dead, follows suit. And verse 6, a single verse, majestic in its terseness. We should read it slowly. There should be a pause with each phrase so that you can grasp the massiveness of this death and the finality of it. Thus, Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men, on the same day. Verse 7, those in Israel who saw the battle from across the valley were completely hopeless. It says they abandoned their cities and fled. 
Rather than defending their lives and their possessions against the rampaging Philistine army, the people of Israel in that area wisely opted to become refugees. And the territory is quickly claimed by the Philistines who move in to the houses. Just keep boiling the water that's on the pot, wear the clothes that are in the dresser, eat the food in the gardens. They just moved right in. Verse 8, it's the next day. And Saul's body is still lying there with the, when the Philistines come to plunder the corpses. Now this is devastating. Normally, protecting a fallen warrior was an essential demand of honor in a battle. And protecting the body of a king would have been of the highest priority. In Homer's Iliad, which was set about a century before the death of Saul, in the Iliad, we have dozens of scenes where a hero falls and the whole army gathers around his body to protect his corpse. So either there were no Israelites left to give him a decent burial, or they were all so scared that they didn't do this fundamental thing done in battle, or they didn't care enough for their king to protect his body. But any way you slice it, Whatever the case, the bodies of the royal family members being left overnight on the battlefield, this is a stark, dramatic image impressing itself upon you so that you feel the overwhelming magnitude of the Israelite defeat. So what do the Philistines do? Verse 9, they strip off Saul's armor. It's his final divestment. He lies naked on the battlefield. It is his ultimate defeat. Remember back in 15, chapter 15, he was stripped of his kingdom. In chapter 18, he was stripped of God's spirit and of his own sanity. In chapter 28, he was stripped of God's voice. And now in chapter 31, in verse 1, he's stripped of his troops. In verse 2, he's stripped of his sons. In verse 3, he's stripped of his courage. In verse 4, he is stripped of his life. And in verse 9, he is stripped of his armor and his head is cut off. The final divestment of Saul. And then in verse 10, the Philistines take his naked, mutilated body and nail it to the wall of Bethshane to be mocked and further violated. And so the tragic king Saul is stripped of any last shred of dignity that he could have possessed. Going back to Homer. The Iliad and, and, and the Odyssey. The ultimate evil for Homer is death followed by desecration of the body. Throughout the ancient Mediterranean world, there was a horror about leaving a corpse unburied. Verse 11. When the people of Jabesh Gilead hear what's happened to Saul, they remember his best moment. Back in chapter 11, they were the beneficiaries of Saul's first kingly act. His finest hour when he delivered the village from the cruel oppression of Nahash. Boo. Nahash, it means snake. How would you like your mama to give you that name? Well, apparently he lived up to it. And so the valiant men of Jabesh Gilead 
remember that Saul stood by them. And so they determine to stand by Saul, even if all that's left of him is a mutilated corpse. No matter what Saul has done since that great moment, nothing is able to obliterate their gratitude for his tremendous deliverance of their village. So on hearing of the Philistine outrage, they risked their lives trekking through the night some 15 miles into Philistine territory and under cover of darkness, they stealthily removed the impaled bodies of Saul and his sons. They take them back home where they burn the bodies. This is awful. Israelites did not burn bodies. They refused to burn the dead. This is such a tragedy that they override all of their folkways with death. Why do they burn the bodies? What could drive them to this? Well, it seems that that was the only way they could make sure that the Philistines couldn't come and abuse the bodies anymore. Their only option was a terrible option. And so 1 Samuel, a book that started with the grief of a barren womb, ends in the devastation of a cemetery. And you're supposed to feel that when you read this. But it's even worse than that. Go back and look at verse 7. When the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities. Remember that part? And they fled and the Philistines came and lived in them. Now if you're going to understand how terrible this is, you need to know the whole story. You need to have the whole Bible at your fingertips because the whole Bible provides the context for the parts of the Bible. In this verse, 1 Samuel chapter 31, verse 7, this is a great case in point. In order to not run past this and to think that you're merely giving, being given a report of what happened, which is going on, this is a report of what happened. But you see, earlier in the story, the Bible tells us, back at the very beginning of the first book of the Bible, that God created the entire cosmos, the whole world. And he made it good. He made it very good. But humans, these unique creatures that God made in his own image, he gave them the task that he gave no other creature, the task of ruling and stewarding the whole creation. And then in Genesis chapter 3, humans abused their responsibility. They rebelled against the creator. And as a result, the entire cosmos descended into chaos. It was wounded. The Bible says the land was even cursed. And then a few chapters later in chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12, God begins to get the whole world back on the right track. And the way he's getting the world back on track is that he makes promises to Abraham that through Abraham he will undo the fateful sin in the garden. Through Abraham and his descendants, God is going to recover his purposes for his entire creation. And here's the key, that, that recovery that God is going to do will be rooted in a particular piece of land. It'll happen through Abraham and his descendants living in the area of the world that we call Palestine. And through their life there, 
God will begin to heal the creation. And so as time goes by and Abraham's descendants grow, there's lots of babies. And finally, about 500 years later, all of these descendants are living as slaves in Egypt. And God brings them out of Egypt by defeating the Egyptian army and shaming the Egyptian gods. And then God brings the Israelites into the promised land, which is inhabited by the Canaanites. And God works through the people of Israel to defeat the Canaanites. And listen to this verse. It comes from earlier in the biblical story. It comes from Joshua chapter 24, verse 13. God has brought Israel into the promised land. And he reminds them that he has listened to this. I have given you a land on which you have not labored and cities that you have not built and you dwell in them and you eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. So you see, back to 1 Samuel chapter 31 verse 7, when the Philistines now come and settle the cities they have not built and enjoy the vineyards they did not plant, it is the exodus in reverse. In the context of the story the Bible is telling, 1 Samuel 31 is about as dark of a moment as you can find because it is the undoing of God's redemption. This is time going backwards. And yet it gets worse. It is not simply that the land comes under the dominion of the Philistines. Look at verse 9 again. It says they cut off the head of Saul and stripped his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to their people. Where else in the Bible, in the story the Bible tells, is there a very tall man? Now remember, the first thing we're ever told about Saul, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 2, he was taller than all the other people. Where else in the story of the Bible is there a giant of a man wounded by a flying weapon that comes through the air and then his head is cut off and his armor is stripped? Does anybody know where else this happens in the Bible? Can anybody say it? Goliath. Saul has become a Goliath, the enemy of God's people. His head was cut off because he had become a Satan, a, a false accuser, a persecutor of the true Israel, David. Use your spear like Goliath, lose your head like Goliath. Now look at verse 10. 1 Samuel 31 verse 10. They put Saul's armor in the temple of Ashtaroth. And we're told in 1 Chronicles chapter 10 verse 10, which is another book that tells the same story, that they fastened his head in the temple of their god Dagon. Dagon. So you see, the Philistines are not merely celebrating a military victory. They are making a religious claim. They are making a theological statement. They are saying that the gods of the Philistines have beat Yahweh, the God of Israel, has been defeated. And notice in the middle of verse 9, just in case you don't get it yet, when they tell people about this, they call it what? Good news, it's the exact same word as gospel. This is the gospel of Dagon. This is the good news that they spread throughout all the land. They are spreading the gospel. 
The Philistines parade Saul's armor and head around Philistia. And after this evangelistic crusade, they put the armor of Saul in the pantheon, the temple of gods, and his head in the temple of Dagon. It is good news for Dagon. It is the gospel for Philistia. Dagon has defeated Saul. This is Dagon's exceptional Excellent, very good day. And throughout Philistia, the messengers announce the exceptional, excellent, very good news that Dagon is king and Yahweh is not. This is a dark moment. And aren't we living in this same moment? Don't you feel today the weight of Dagon's extraordinary string of recent victories? Doesn't it seem like school shootings are becoming a part of our daily news cycle? Some of There are people in our church who have lived through the awful pain of watching people you love succumb to cruel suffering and deaths. Some of you are dealing with the awful ongoing effects of abuse in your own life. People in our church have been abandoned by their spouses. I think of those of you whose body and minds have become your own worst enemies. Christians built churches in Pennsylvania. And in Pennsylvania, over a period of 70 years, the church in the grip of idols like Dagon have covered up sexual abuse by more than 300 priests persuading victims not to report the abuse to law enforcement and persuading law enforcement not to investigate. And there are more than 1,000 identifiable victims. And they're saying that there are probably thousands more who won't even come forward and their records are lost. Dagon is having... An exceptional, very good run. There's the genocide occurring in Sudan, in the Nuba Mountains, while the world stands by once again. Once again, America and all of the great powers of the world are watching a genocide occur. Omar al-Bashir, the president of Sudan, is the only sitting head of state wanted that has been convicted of genocide, war crimes, and crimes against humanity, along with his henchman, Ahmad Muhammad Haroun. Those two orchestrated the genocide of Darfur. And you know what they did after they were convicted by the International Criminal Court? President Bashir took Haran, who was the governor of Darfur, did all the atrocities to Darfur, and he moved him to be the governor of the Nuba Mountains. And the first thing he did when he got there was he kicked out the UN and the press. And living in our church are refugees from his genocidal reign of terror. And Andudu told me this week what he's doing in Nuba Mountains makes Darfur pale in comparison. And so do you know that Andudu met with Haran many times, face to face, and Haran tried to buy him off. He gave him cars, he gave him money, and Andudu resisted them. Bashir commanded Bishop Andudu, a member of our church, to gather all the priests in the Nuba Mountains, and to make them, make their congregations vote for Bashir in the next election. And Andudu said no. 
And then Andudu stood up and spoke against the Sharia law. And as a result, they tried to kill him and his family. And in God's providence, Andudu was in Covington, Louisiana, having a medical procedure done. And his wife and children were in Uganda because his wife was finishing her theological degree. When they assaulted his house, they shot it up. They, they looked for him in the offices of the diocese, in the cathedral of the diocese, and he got a phone call in the middle of the night and said, don't come back. They're trying to find you. And the government of Sudan continues to bomb the Nuba Mountains. Daily bombings of their own people, their own villages and schools and hospitals. They're seeking to depopulate a region of two million people. And our world sits by as Dagon has another victory. And this is where 1 Samuel ends. It ends with the awful gospel of Dagon. The awful good news of Yahweh's defeat. But here's the thing. 1 Samuel 31 is not the end of the story. The good news of Dagon's victory is short-lived because the very next page of the story is the story of David. After the tragedy of Saul comes King David. And after all the other Saul-like kings in the history of Judah, there is always another David. After Ahaz, a Hezekiah. After Manasseh, a Josiah, after Josiah's wicked sons, Sirius and Darius. And you keep reading the story. Yahweh overcomes the transgressions of kings and establishes his kingdom in spite of them all. Adam fell and other Adams fall again and again. And ultimately this book, 1 Samuel, is about the promise of the last Adam. The good news of Dagon is short-lived. The collapse of Saul's house is complete, but it is no accident. Despite appearances, Dagon did not kill Saul. Behind Saul's death was an invisible hand guiding that arrow. Over the last several weeks, we've seen that Saul dies and his house collapses because Yahweh is his enemy. God will take down a house that transgresses, a king who refuses to guard the word of Yahweh, who closes his ear to Yahweh's voice. And the reason we can know that the good news of Dagon is short-lived is because we've seen Dagon's temple before. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 4, when the Philistines defeated Israel, they captured the ark. And in chapter 5, they placed the ark in the temple of Dagon. It was a trophy proclaiming the good news of Dagon's victory over Yahweh. But it soon became clear that something else was actually happening. 1 Samuel chapter 5 verse 2. The Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose up early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose up early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon in both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. The false god Dagon, you see, fell before the ark of God, doing homage to Yahweh's throne. And eventually, 
He was broken by the fall. You see, the battle appeared to belong to Dagon. But what looked like Yahweh's defeat was actually Yahweh's invasion. Read the story of Samson one day. It is the same thing. Samson was taken as a Philistine trophy, but he became the agent of the Philistines' defeat. And in the book of Daniel, we see the same with Daniel and his young friends. Three young, four young men taken as trophies to Babylon become agents of the kingdom. And then there's Jesus Christ himself who looked like just another victim of greed and nationalism gone awry and injustice. But in fact, when you look at Jesus in the moment of his apparent defeat, in that very moment, God himself was achieving the great victory over Dagon and all the other minions of darkness and evil that this world has ever produced. When we read the last chapter of 1 Samuel, we should feel the weight of all the ground gained by darkness in our own lives, in our own world. And we should learn to see that God still intends a future that Israel could scarcely have imagined. And we need to learn to see when Dagon is having a very good run in our own day. We need to learn to see with the eyes of faith. Israel may be defeated. Saul may have failed in his task of freeing Israel from the Philistines. But God was still God. And so this stands as a reminder to those of us who are living in situations where the church appears to have been defeated. God is still God. If the Philistines have taken over our cities and our churches, we can still be agents of Yahweh's victory. If we end up in exile or worse, it is because Jesus is sending us into new territory. The ark was not captured. Neither was Samson. Neither were Daniel and his friends. They were deployed. When God is with us, we are never captives. We are always agents of his kingdom. In whatever darkness you are in. And when, wherever he sends us. We are sent with better news than Dagon's satanic gospel. He sends us with the news of Dagon's ultimate defeat. It is the sure victory of the God who created all things and who is making all things new. And before him, all of the powers of darkness will fall.